Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Poddleters. Welcome back for season eight of Adulting. I took a bit of a long break, but I'm excited for you to hear all the conversations I've been having, the things I've been learning and the people that I have been speaking to. So to start it off, I speak to Ash Sarkar. She is a British journalist, left-wing political activist and also the senior editor at Navarra Media, as well as teaching and lecturing at universities. So she is very academic, very intellectual and certainly made me feel like, God, I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to these issues. But she is really generous with me in this conversation and I certainly learned a lot from her. We spoke about the difficulty in creating a unified left, inverted commas. We also spoke about communism, the way that social media plays a part in the polarization of politics. And at the end of every episode this season, I'm asking my guests for their three favorite books. So if you're interested in those as well, I'm going to put them in the show notes. I love speaking to Ash. And again, she really blew me away because it really showed how adept I am in some of these conversations. But I hope that you learn just as much as I do and enjoy the conversation just as much as I did. Happy listening. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Hey. How are you doing? Um, can't complain. I'm a bit sleepy. Um, but I'm sure you'll wake me up. Okay, good. I hope I'm going to wake you up. Uh, for people who don't know who you are and what you do, could you give us an introduction to you and your work? Ooh, okay. Um, so my name's Ash. I'm five foot two in Aries from North London. I'm a communist. I'm a contributing editor at left-wing media outlet Navarra Media. I'm a lecturer at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. And I also do a bit of freelance writing. I've done some ghost writing and I'm now uh, starting to work on my own book. Oh my God, that is so exciting. Congratulations. When did you start working on that? Well, we're still in the like super early stages of putting it together. Um, but it felt quite urgent after the general election result. And there's a lot to make sense of. And I thought that the thing that I want to do is explain what's going on with the culture wars, how have they become so important, and what effect do they have on our political landscape? Oh, I think that's absolutely fascinating. That's kind of like the crux, that kind of stuff is what I'm completely fascinated by, which is why I love everything that you do. And I know that this is such an annoying thing to say, because I'm, well, I'm younger than you, and I've watched so many people in interviews with you being like, using your age as a means to be like, you don't know what you're talking about, but you are young to have so many strings to your bow and to have so many different parts to your career. How did you get into being this and being this person with like a myriad things well you know Fred Hampton was was in his early 20s when he was assassinated you know when he was yeah. when he was killed by the FBI so I don't think that like age is any barrier to political uh awareness or activity um for me the single biggest influence on my politics was my mom um seeing how uh she had been shaped by 
the economic conditions that we live in as a single mum, a woman of colour, but also how she resisted it. She's always been politically active. She was active in the movement against apartheid. She was active in the Black and Asian uh, caucuses of the trade union movement. And there was always just this environment of politics is something you get stuck into that you talk about all the time. Uh, and you certainly don't trust politicians either. No, I completely agree. That's I love the idea that it's been like in your bones. And I think that's something we need to talk about more in terms of especially right now. I think that has happened. And I think that especially since the last election, obviously with Jeremy Corbyn, that did ignite a lot of political ambition in lots of young people who suddenly felt like, actually, I'm quite invested and interested in what's going on. And this sounds like something that I can I can get behind. How does it feel now being in the space where you are, I mean, you've got tons and tons of followers on Twitter, you do face a lot of adversity in people coming for you. We, did you feel, can you ever be prepared for that? And were you ever expecting to reach a level of like, I don't know if notoriety is the right word, but you are very well known in these circles. Was that something that you ever wanted or expected to happen? No, absolutely not. Um, what what I like about Navara Media, and that's how my platform got built in the first place, is that it took the kinds of conversations that we were having in political spaces. We all met through the student movement, you know, in 2010, 2011. And we just created a media platform which could publish those conversations, stage those conversations and involve other people in our own political thinking. So it felt in a way that I was learning to do media in a completely different way than I thought media should be done from having consumed, you know, legacy broadcasting content from the BBC or Channel 4 or what have you. And that created in turn something really um, supportive and in some ways cocooning when shit just hit the fan when it came to the far right and the abuse and all that. You feel so ensconced by a movement and a political shared collectivity that you feel quite protected and you feel that even though things are going completely nuts that you're on the right track and you're doing the right thing because those are also the people that you trust to pull you up when you do fuck up or you do make a bad judgment um and so I think that's one of the reasons why you know yeah sometimes things can be upsetting um and you just have to like wade through you know a complete like cesspit of crap um but when you've got that kind of friendship group around you and it's a politicized friendship group um, you never feel alone in it. Do you think that like since the inception of Novara Media, have you felt like politics is becoming more and more polarised? It's something I talk about not an, a lot and I'm not anyway as much clued up as you are. Um, but I feel like even in my personal life, I feel like it used to be very heightened online and that's kind of the nature of social media, but it's kind of trickling into my everyday life that these really heightened discussions in a way that it never used to be. Do you think that that is like kind of happening universally? And do you, do you know what the catalyst is for that? Or is it kind of social media? It's kind of a chicken and the egg situation. Yeah, I, think, I think that that politics has become more polarised. And I think that there are lots of different things that have driven that polarisation. So one is social media, right? Because social media is basically a partial democratization of the public sphere. 
It used to be that political media was a one-way conversation. Broadcasters broadcast, consumers consume. Whereas now that dynamic's changed. Its audiences are talking back and are shaping uh, political collectivities outside of the traditional means. So yes, that is one aspect of it. But another is that we live in a hugely polarised society because of socioeconomic inequalities. Like to me, it seems completely batshit that over 65s as an age group doubled their wealth in the decade following the financial crisis. So you've got this huge intergenerational inequality in wealth. Um, Home ownership amongst my age group, right? So late 20s, early 30s. 25 years ago, that was at around uh, 65%. Now it's collapsed to less than a quarter. So what this tells you is a story of the social contracts between generations having broken down. And you've got a young generation which is completely locked out of having a stake in the ongoing uh, running of the status quo as it is, right? What's the point in preserving the status quo if you don't have a stake in it? And so then you then have, you know, as a kind of backlash to that, because that would usually be the ideal uh, environment for nurturing left-wing populism, a kind of, you know, revenge of the homeowning, you know, retiree baby boomer, boomer. And that is the sort of culture wars stuff. That is the kind of Brexit stuff, which is about taking these marginal issues uh, and turning them into very potent symbols of, of the nation under threat. And the right know how to do this. They've done this since 2016. Is taking these, you know, they, no one gave, gave shit about the EU uh, in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. You know, Euroscepticism, tiny marginal issue. No one cared. Um, but then turning it into a referendum on sovereignty about Britain's place in the world slapping it down in the centre of the the public conversation, creating a division and securing a majority on that division. The left is very bad at that. Um, So polarisation is happening. It's happening economically, it's happening because of technology, and it's also happening as as a political strategy. And the left need to work out how to secure a majority coalition in that environment. What I find so confusing about the whole... The, the inviting the left that everyone goes on about it's like I can never work out if maybe it's kind of like part of the nature of especially people who feel very liberal and have certain ideologies about things as you're saying earlier like your friends are going to call you up it is a position of feeling like you want to be accountable for what you're doing and what you're saying and so like I always wonder is it kind of just part of the nature of some of the ideology on the left that we will never be able to have some of the camaraderie that the right can get when they can bandy together better than we can does that make sense or do you think that's a bit too generalized yeah, yeah, I, I hear you but I think we need to then like drill down into it a bit more are we talking about the left or are we talking about liberals are we talking about liberals who think they're leftists or are we talking about leftists who think that they're liberals um because I think that that can tell you just what the nature of the conflict within progressive circles is on the one hand if you take an entity like the Labour Party, it's because there was a split between people who wanted to see um, a return 
to genuine social democracy in the UK and thought the way to do that was by advancing socialist policies, right? That's your Jeremy Corbyn's, your John McDonald's, your Diane Abbott's. But the party up until that point had been led by people who thought we're all middle class now, right? John Mm -hmm. Prescott very famously said that in 1997. Uh, The Labour right thought that the role of the party was to basically be the electoral wing of corporate social responsibility. And they'd lost two elections on that basis, Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. So that's one kind of conflict. And then you've got the other kind of conflict, which is, I guess, kind of performed on social media, call out culture and this, this, that and the other. And it comes from sometimes a good place and sometimes a bad place. The good place is to recognise that um, just because we identify as being on the left, it doesn't mean that we don't reproduce homophobia, sexism, racism, ableism, transphobia in our spaces. And it's and it's good to want to um, provide spaces which are, which are better and more welcoming than what society has to offer. And then the bad mm-hmm. thing is that sometimes I think it becomes very obsessive and granular because you're never going to end up with a perfect activist space. That's not going to happen. And so if you make having a perfect activist space a condition of doing anything, then you fucked it. You're no longer on the terrain of mass politics. You're out. You know, it's you and four friends screaming at each other. You're done so. Um, so I think that's a very different kind of conflict. And the reason why these things are so much more potent on the left than on the right is because we're not aligned with the forces of capital, right? We're not going to have the city, you know, out there hoping that we win, right? We're going to have all of that money put into financing uh, our political opponents. We're not going to have a broadcast media environment which is hospitable to our messaging. It's when 61% of broadcast media stories have their origins in right-wing newspapers and the complexion of the newspaper industry is far more right-wing uh, than it was in the days of, you know, Harold Wilson winning elections and the Daily Mirror was the country's most read newspaper. So it's always going to be an uphill struggle for us. We're not going to be able to win by playing by other people's rules because those rules were created precisely so that we don't win. That's it. You put that so perfectly. And I feel like I'm such a guilty party of trying to be the person that I'm very idealist. And I am one of those people that's like, we can't say this and you can't do that. And I had this really big, long conversation with someone a few weeks ago. And I suddenly realized that, which is why I kind of wanted to talk to you about no platforming, because I was, as you're saying, like hammering that so hard, like trying to be so perfectionist in the way that I was being inclusive, that actually it was like just shutting down conversations. And that's, and that is an argument that's leveled often towards people like me, liberals or whatever you you want to say. And I know that people say it to you too. So how do you like toe that line? Because you do speak up on things very well and you do things, call things out. How do you straddle the ability to engage in conversations with people that whose views are so abhorrent whilst maintaining your own ability to like still talk about things in the way that you want to? Well, it depends what the nature of the conversation is. So are you coalition building or are you in conflict? Because there's two two different things. They're both really important in politics. Um, I talked about him before, Fred Hampton, when I was just sort of making a joke about, uh, about age. He's someone who really understood the limitations of identity-based nationalisms, right? He said, we're not going to defeat 
capitalism with black capitalism. We'll defeat it with socialism. We're not going to defeat, uh, you know, white nationalism with black nationalism. We're going to defeat it with black liberation. Um, and so he understood that it wasn't enough to talk about race and nothing else. In it was a critique of American imperialism. Of course, Fred Hampton uh, was an activist during uh, the Vietnam War, so that became a particularly potent issue. Uh, and also a, a criticism of capitalism. Because I think once you get onto that terrain of thinking about the material organisation of our lives, it's not then about drilling down to, to immutable difference, right? along the lines of race or gender or what have you. It's about actually shared experiences of how, how, how we, we engage with the economy, right? And so that's, that's, that's how I think you do that thing. But then the other thing is conflict, right? You can't build a coalition with someone who is implacably opposed to your goals and wishes to destroy you. And that's where the conflict bit is important. So sometimes, you know, your enemy will say that he's your friend. And you've got to say, mm, no. So I think what's so interesting, and I hadn't really thought about it, but I'm thinking about it more and more, is I do talk about identity politics all the time. And I think you, like kind of what you're saying is that's sort of a symptom of our wider capitalist patriarchy that we live in. You know, capitalism is kind of inherently racist in because of institutionalized racism and knowing that, you know, the idea that you can, as long as you work hard enough, you'll get what we want. We know that systemically these things like aren't true. And so I guess what you're trying to say is that you've got to look at, really zoom out at the broader wider things that we live under rather than like pointing out the, the minutiae that, that are true and really tragic but also I guess we can't solve anything by zooming in on those is that what you're saying well um, yes and no I think that identity is something you've got to work through because identity is the interface between our individual subjectivities and the society that we live in so it's no use asking people to transcend their own identity. It's inherently political. But it's saying that political conflict isn't only played out along the lines of identity. And I think one of the reasons why identitarian ways of framing conflict have become so potent, it's because over the last 40 years, the institutions which produce class consciousness, the trade union movement, uh, you know, heavy industry uh, council housing have all been smashed to bits. So now we don't have these institutions which remake class consciousness. It means that we've now got class as a set of floating signifiers. So accent, uh, educational status, political views, where you live in the country, uh, in a way which is weirdly decoupled from income and from wealth. So you end up in an absurd situation where, you know, you've got property developers claiming to be working class. Meanwhile, someone who's working uh, in a call centre in London is deemed more middle class because they know what an avocado is. Like, it's insane. So I kind of think that there's been an identitarian tilt in how we understand class politics um, because of those institutions being smashed to bits. So it's no good saying transcend identities. It's actually about materially ground our understanding of identities. It's really interesting because I think since ever since I've been alive, I've always seen, I used to associate 
class, like poshness with wealth and everything. And then as I've got older, just as you said, I've started to, the, the economic boundary of that has blurred. And it is about, you know, where someone's from or what their parents did. And you kind of have, you can transcend the class that your parents were, but you can't ever really change where you came from. It's kind of like an attitude that I've like kind of subscribe to sort of like if you're born working class then you are working class forever so it's interesting I mean from an academic point of view would you say that we shouldn't really be so flippant with class and it does have need to be more neatly tied into like your socioeconomic status than it is currently well I think we need to understand that class composition has changed a lot in the last 40 years and that's because the single most important figure in UK politics of the last 50 years, undoubtedly, is Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Right? She absolutely is. Very famously, she said, economics is the method, the object is to change the soul. And she did that. So she created a new uh, middle class out of property owners who were reliant on asset inflation for their wealth, right? Right to buy, sell off the council housing, make owners out of former council tenants, and then restrict the new construction of council housing. Um, Smash to bits the trade union movement. So also, when you've got the demise of heavy industry, you also have just the heart being ripped out of these communities. You've got the creation of, you know, a white collar precariat. Mm. It was a complete transformation in British class composition. And so I think that we've got to think about, well, how does class work differently today? You know, you can have a graduate who's heavily in debt, never going to, never going to own a property in their lives. Um, are they more or less middle class than, you know, a self-employed contractor or plumber who owns their own business, owns their own house and can retire quite comfortably. I think especially like when we're talking about the problem with the left, I'm doing inverted commas, but you can't see me. Um, <laughs> a lot of the time we we do, people from those areas that were really impacted by Thatcher, those mining towns and those places that have never really had those things put back into place so that those areas outside of London can have like the economic prosperity that, that we have luckily in London, that those communities are often the people that are voicing the fact that this new wave of lib- liberalism isn't what they're subscribing to. I feel like you can put this better than me, but do you know what I'm trying to get at in terms well, of... If we're looking at voting behaviour, it's also really interesting to look at how uh, the voting behaviour in those seats has changed. Who's switching and who's sticking? So the switchers tend to be relatively affluent within those areas. So tend right. to be homeowners, tend to be pensioners, tend to be older. Uh, the majority of people who are, uh, you know, in deprivation, you know, in, you know, they hit all those indexes of deprivation. Well, they're non-voters. Right, right. They're, they're just they don't come out and vote, and the bulk of working age people, so you know, eighteen, you know, up to forties and blah blah, they're voting Labour. So it's much more, I think, to do with I think generational changes in wealth and economic security, um, as well as these things that you indicate and you point to. And those things are sharpened, I think, through through other political issues, such as immigration, such as Brexit, perceived weakness mm. on national security and all that kind of thing. Um, 
But another explanation for why these seats become more unstable is because you look at the demographics, there's an exodus of the young. These places are aging, they're getting older. And it's because young people are having to move to the cities in order to find work. So it's so in order to, I guess, categorize people now, it's not it's, I think this is where I get to as well. It, it has become, I guess, these labels that we used to use in terms of class and whatever else it might be, they're actually becoming slightly redundant because they don't mean the same things. Do you think there needs to be a new means of um, creating dialogue? Because I also feel like, and maybe this is just heightened because of the conversations that I get into and the people that I follow on Twitter and the way that I engage with things, but it does feel like this class war but as you say between two people that could actually be from very similar backgrounds and have very similar incomes but maybe that someone's from the north and someone's from the south these things are all seeming seemingly getting heightened and there seems to be so much miscommunication and everyone can't engage and I'm not just talking about like on good morning Britain but conversations are getting really stunted and becoming so aggravated so quickly are you finding that that that's happening more and more or are you finding there is any space for nuance when it comes to actually trying to get to the root of what is causing this feeling of not even just disenfranchisement, but like people just feeling so angry towards any kind of ability to make a change? I don't know. I don't know if I'm honest. And so at the moment, I've been trying to work through my own feelings of nihilism, if I'm honest. I find it hard to feel hopeful. And I feel hard to feel hopeful as a person of colour. I look at what's going on in the States. Uh, the violence of white nationalism and look at the way in which those culture wars have been imported here and the way they're playing out and it's hard to feel that a spirit of solidarity and mutual aid and kindness can overcome a thirst for violence for cruelty uh, for domination you know, like, I don't, I don't know how you get there. Um, my partner's actually much more hopeful than me. And he's actually from, you know, a, a red wall seat that flipped blues from Penniston, uh, you know, had the heart ripped out of it by Thatcher. And he actually feels more hopeful than me. So I'm just sort of outsourcing my hope to him uh, and seeing if it can carry me through the next couple of years. And what do you think, do you think that part of the issue is this, we are becoming more individualized and more, I don't know if neoliberalist is the right term in this situation, but I guess like, especially, well, maybe in terms of like some streams of feminism that are coming in and the way that everyone's, and it's a very capitalist ideal that we've got to make the most and do the most. Do you think that that part of the breaking down of kind of like community and not necessarily religion, but that is that was part of the community, do you think that that's feeding into this wider narrative of this individual's want rather than this ability, as you say, to create unity and to break down these really awful phobias that people have around people of different intersections? I mean, I think this is also a question of organising, right? And so I think that one of the problems is, is that the anti-racist movement has become balkanized and it lacks institutional strength, particularly in this country. That's something which is changing in the United States and it has changed with Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, don't forget, has had two iterations. The first was its explosion onto the scene after the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the killing of Trayvon Martin. Uh, It became particularly salient in Ferguson 
uh, after the killing of Mike Brown. And then there was this period where you didn't hear so much about Black Lives Matter, but they were busy doing the work of, of making institutions, right, that could be ready for when the next moment came along. And those institutions were ready. Uh, and I think that that speaks to uh, the, the, the foresight in their political strategy. It was a really, really good thing to do. In the UK, we haven't quite got there yet. We really haven't got there yet. And I hope that's going to change. I think instead, we have, I think, a very kind of a balkanized and fragmented anti-racist movement, which tends to treat different communities as very, very separate. We don't yet have a discourse or an organizational framework that can hold all these things together. And I think that that's a result of the particular history of anti-racism in the UK. Um, Political blackness, obviously, uh, is deeply flawed as an identity. However, it was a useful organizing tool at one time in history because it was a reflection of how the British racial landscape had been uh, affected by the composition of its empire. And so it was, I think, a much more anti-imperialist in lots of ways than, you know, its parallel movements in the United States. And that's that's because of, of the impact of empire. What you had after uh, you know, the riots of the of the 80s, so Tuxteth, Brixton, Broadwater Farm, Handsworth, is a partial institutionalization of some bits of the anti-racist movement. So they became NGOified. Uh, they kind of became incorporated into some aspects of the state under new labor. And they became completely uh, detached from communities of colour. It became its own world of equalities and human rights and blah, 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 which operated at this very lofty level, had zero impact on people's lives. Um, And we've never really recovered from that. We've never really recovered from that detachment. And we've got to work out a way to do it, and I think work out a way to do it very quickly, because the kind of white nationalist uh, explosion that's currently gripping the United States is going to come here. You know, they say when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Um, These things will have an impact on us. They're already coming here in some kind of way. And so I think we've got to work out a way of of recreating these liberation movements in a way which has like institutional resilience without falling back on neoliberal identity politics. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, And you're right, it's terrifying. And it definitely is coming over. And just even with the whole Lawrence Fox situation, and then the amount of kind of like news coverage he then got in talking about this, and it felt like a really weird time to be living through where things that even when I was growing up, I felt like you couldn't be so overtly racist. And suddenly that's kind of slipping back into the world and and I, I can't even imagine how terrifying that must be as a woman of color like I'm a really privileged white woman so I can't really speak on it to any level of depth but I mean I, the thing is I, what I find funny about Lawrence Fox is that he looks like Sid from Ice Age he, he so does sort of like <laughs> gurning and pantomiming he's very he's you know what he's very good at what he does because you can see how he's identified the space that he wants to operate in and he's he's made that for himself. So he's done it very, very cleverly. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that what he's saying is any less idiotic. It's, you know, he's feeding the, like, paranoid delusions of, you know, 
white British baby boomers who've got a real persecution complex. But he's done it very, very smartly. You know, he couldn't make it as a musician. You know, he was kind of mid-range actor. But now look, you know, he's, you know, in our top five talk radio reactionary pundits, you know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's ridiculous to look on in it, but it is awful how these people gamify these tactics, which literally could, you know end someone's life because of the, the the way that they're spreading this rhetoric and it's like terrifying i've seen people so many people level at you that because you talk about race or because you bring up race and talk about how it intersects with things going on that you're creating this race war and i feel like when you have that that level of miscommunication where people don't like you you're literally talking on completely different levels do you do you find that very frustrating like how do we bridge that gap of understanding you know i mean so i think I mean, answering this in a non-political way for a second. So, you know, I come from a family that's mixed by marriage. Uh, my my stepdad is white British. I've got two uh, white British stepbrothers. Um, and my boyfriend is, is from Yorkshire, which he thinks is distinct from white British, but I have to correct him. Um, so I, I exist in a mixed environment all the time. And one of the things that was interesting to talk about with my stepdad actually was how when he married my mum one of the things that he had to learn how to do was parent to children of color right me and my sister and it was a challenge for him who had kind of you know entertained these like very progressive views to then work out how to socialize uh, me and my sister into the world when he will never understand how it feels to be us. And I think through shared experience, through muddling through, it's possible to foster a much deeper understanding and a really loving understanding, even though you you can't understand how it feels to be me. You can get to know me very well. And that's a, that's a way of, I think, opening things up and starting to exist in a shared social reality. So what I try and remind myself is that those voices on Twitter who are calling me a race baiter, saying that I must hate all white people and blah, blah, is that maybe they reflect the worst 20% of white people out there. And 20% would still, it's still a lot, right? That's still a problem that can still shape politics. But actually through coalition building, through interpersonal interactions, through a shared social existence, it's possible to take white people along with you and for them to become invested in the changes that need to happen for society to become fairer. So I think that experience of a mixed family of mixed relationships 
makes me feel that a greater understanding can be reached, but it's got to be done from a position of equals. If you go looking for white people's validation, you'll never get it. But if you come out from a position of, of power and of confidence, it's possible to fashion that something new together. Yeah, and I I feel like within, although this is massively generalising, but like within our, our age group and within people that probably have like similar views to us, the conversations around race are really nuanced, really complicated, and people are really like starting to get a grip on a deeper understanding of race beyond the overt stuff but like the real institutionalized racism that happens and it's on you're right that in real life and like as you say you've clearly got like a lovely family where you know those things are really worked through and and understood and as like there's a massive level of empathy there but I guess it's like what especially when you're online and as you say you're engaging that in that 20 percent it does it does throw into relief all these people that maybe we wouldn't well, I wouldn't have that experience, but wouldn't engage with in real life. And I wonder if like... The thing is, is that I want to. I want to talk to these people. I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by who they are. I want to know, like, what's your relationship with your parents like? What mm. what food do you eat? What do you watch on telly? What is your life like that you manage to make time in your day to call me a low IQ Bengali or to say that I must have been railed by X many white men at university or to call me a packy or whatever. I want to know who you are. Except anytime I go, hey, do you want to actually like just talk? Do you want to like talk on Skype or whatever? Then they're nowhere to be seen. It's really annoying. I will never satiate my own curiosity. It's it's it is frustrating though because like even hearing you say that I think like this is one of the thing, things I kind of wanted to come on to talk to you about was in terms of like saying that the liberal leftists like never want to talk to people they want to deplatform everyone they want a no platform like what are your what are your understandings and opinions of no platforming from because from what you just said like actually engaging in a conversation to you even if it was someone that's like fucking awful is productive and could prove to have like a really good result so what's your your opinion of no platforming and this idea that you know that's all that we do on the left I mean no platform is a specific tool intended to deal with fascists because throughout throughout history fascists have utilized the institutions of liberal democracy in order to gain power and then destroy those institutions that's what they've done um, and so no platform is a tool to deal with that, to nip it in the bud, to not wait until it's too late this time. However, it's made more complicated by that partial democratization of the public sphere through social media. And also, I think, made more complicated by people taking elements of other forms of ideology, whether it's, uh, you know, transphobic ideology or white nationalism stopping short of fascism or anything else and going this is an appropriate tool to use in those cases as well and I think that sometimes you know when all you have is a hammer everything starts to look like a nail I think that the problem is is that no platform became seen as the only tool to use Uh, and I think there are lots of tools that can be used when dealing with the reproduction of uh, bigotry exclusionary discourses uh, through the through media I think that there are lots of different tools that can be used and and we don't necessarily always use them. Um, So, yeah, that's my take on on no platform, which is developed to do a specific thing in a specific time. Things have become more complicated. 
So if we're talking about trying to like unify this very disparate left of Labour supporters who maybe have left Labour or when we're talking about trying to create some kind of bridge across this chasm that has been created through these divides, do you think that because of echo chambers and social media and no platforming and the way that media propaganda works and all of these things, do you think that actually in some ways um, having no platforming or relying on it too heavily is actually causing more of a divide? Like, Do you think that that's one of the, the things that's actually perhaps exacerbating the dismantling of like a a unified left? Well, I know I think the the problem of a unified left, I think is much more fundamental. And it's a recognition that the moderate centrist policies of the 1990s through the 2000s led us to where we are today, right? in terms of Brexit, authoritarian, right-wing populism, economic catastrophe, a decade of lost wage growth, that those are the policies that got us here. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the face of that very same authoritarian right-wing populism, there has to be some kind of coalition between centrists, liberals, technocrats, and the radical left in order to protect democratic institutions Uh, from right-wing authoritarians. And we haven't worked out how to do that. We simply haven't worked out how to do that. We haven't worked out how to do that in America. We haven't worked out how to do that in the UK. And so I think that the stuff about echo chambers and no platform, that's not a cause of that disunity. It's a pretext for it. And so I think we've got to get good at at identifying how things are used as excuses for a better, better, better politics not happening and what's actually causing it. And so I think the cause is different. Right. Okay. That's a really interesting take on it because it's something I kind of, I'm not at any way near as well versus as you are. So I'm sorry if it feels like I'm jumping around at the no, time. No, no, You're probably no, no, like, no, no. what is she talking about? The next thing I want to talk to you about, because um, I find it fascinating, is communism. Mm-hmm. Um because I know you're literally a communist, favourite favorite little clip. But talk to me a bit more about that, because I find myself as well, I'm quite an idealist, and I've listened to you speak a lot, and I think that I some of the things that I say, I often get people laugh at me at parties, because I do have this massive utopian ideal of the world that's probably never going to happen. But talk to me about where your ideas towards leaning towards communism came from, and what, what how could you define communism for people? Because I think some people hear that and just think, well, you're ridiculous. So... And obviously come forward with, well, look at what happened in Russia, et cetera. So talk to me about your communism and your views on it. So, I mean, I would define myself as as a a humanist communism. I believe in uh, everything for everyone, omnia sunt communia. But I also believe in individual human flourishing, which is not what happened in the Soviet Union or under Mao. Um, Why I'm a communist is very easy. Because you look around and we are poisoning the planet we live on in order to generate more wealth for people who already have more money than they could ever spend in a thousand lifetimes. And that for me is the sickness of capitalism, right? It is the cancer at the heart of capitalism. And I'm also a communist because I believe that capitalism is a constraint on that human flourishing. How many poets 
how many writers, how many painters, how many sculptors, how many dancers have we lost because they can no longer afford to live because they have to sell their labor to work mining coltan in the Congo because they've got to sell their labor to work two, maybe three cleaning jobs in the city of London. I feel that what we have now isn't freedom of choice. It's the illusion of choice, where the choices between be exploited or be excluded from the means of survival. That's not much of a choice at all. Now, as for the Soviet Union, which I said, that is not a humanist form of communism. It was an authoritarian dictatorial regime. It needed this huge bloating of the military apparatus like all dictatorships do. It also operated within huge geopolitical constraints. The Soviet Union, you know, after the Russian Revolution was, you know, invaded by 14 countries. Uh, and it still managed to take Russians in the space of a single lifetime from serfdom to space. So it was a hugely rapid period of industrialization. Um, but that's certainly not my idea of communism. For me, communism is about the shared ownership and stewardship of all the things that we need to live. Food, air, land, water, energy. Uh, where everyone gets what they need and isn't able to hoard, to restrict other people's access to these things that they need to survive in order to profit. That's it's so interesting you put it like that because I was trying to talk about it with my boyfriend earlier and and I was like, well, what he was like, well, the only thing I don't get is that you know people would kind of stop not creating like uh, art and things, but maybe he was like, we wouldn't advance and then economically we would have nothing to offer and then all of this stuff. And I was trying to explain to him exactly kind of what you said, but way better than I did. I was like, well, I guess right now we feel like we've got the freedom um, to, which is the choice you're talking about. So we've got the freedom to, you know, if we can, if we've got the privilege, work up and make something or whatever. Whereas I guess communism would be freedom from poverty or the possibility that, you know, you couldn't, even enjoy life in any way shape or form would you say that's a really simplified way of and freedom it? too and freedom too what freedoms do you have when you no longer worry about losing your home mm. what freedoms do you have when you have electricity when you have wi-fi when you have food on your table those are freedoms too as well um, and we don't think about those privations as a restriction of freedom and you and and, and, you, and you really we really should I mean I remember growing up this before my mom married my stepdad um you know we were, we were broke broke like we were up all night mum worrying at the kitchen table broke we were precariously housed broke for a bit and what freedom did she have what choice mm. did she have what opportunity for human flourishing did she have it was miserable it was terrible um, and so I kind of think, you know, we don't exist as these abstract free units of choice in capitalist society. Our choices are hugely constrained. And we've, I mean, we've seen it with COVID, the, the, the 
people in in power think that everyone has a garden and that everyone has this freedom so they're like oh you can't exercise but don't worry just go in your garden I'm like I live on the sixth floor in like a shoebox flat in an old office building I don't have a garden like yeah. it's just it's it's interesting that the people at the top like that I think that was such a good signifier of showing what they think like the baseline of people living in, the, in this country like what's the norm and it just really throws into relief like how how much as you say like earlier about um them like the government being like oh we're all middle class now and it's like no that just isn't how it works and that's that's certainly not how like most of my generation are living and I think that it seems it's funny because it doesn't seem radical to me a lot of the things that you say but I know that maybe that is do you think that that is a generational thing that we all have we just see this capitalist monster as like a kind of machination of private school boys wet dreams rather than something that's like great to work towards I mean, I think it goes back to this question of having been locked out of the economy. If you don't have an asset which can appreciate in value, you're fucked. Mm. And that's that's, that's the story of our generation. We're saddled with debt. We've got no way out of it because of that, you know, decade of lost wage growth. It was the lowest wage growth the UK has ever seen since 1815. Um, what, What is there? What is there? Um, and meanwhile, because of that asset inflation, which sees the wealth of older generations just, you know, skyrocketing, that keeps our participation on that level of the economy uh, out of our hands. So we're in an impossible bind. Capitalism isn't working for us. But it's also the case that we're we're looking at, at the future of this planet. We're looking at, we're living ecological catastrophe. And mm. yet the power stations keep burning. We're guzzling petrol as if nothing's up um it's a sickness do you think because i mean widely people would say that china china is a communist country but is it not kind of capitalism dressed up as communism i mean china is a very interesting one i would say that the greater challenge posed by china isn't really about capitalism versus uh communism it's about anglo-american capitalism versus state capitalism, which is what China mm. can do. If you look at their state investment funds uh, and the relationship of Chinese corporations back to the government is actually very, very interesting. Uh, and I think that China uh, has two things. One uh, is huge amounts of internal investment so that its own internal market can be something which drives economic growth and that has been what's happening but even as that levels off by hook or by crook uh china wants to transform its role in the global economy it no longer wants to simply produce low value goods right the nuts and the bolts which are then sold off by american corporations is that they want in on technology information and data very high value economic activity. Um, And they've got the state clout to back it up. Whereas, you know, after 40 years of neoliberalism, what's happened in, you know, Britain and America is that we've hollowed out our own state capacity to do anything. Mm. You know, we can't even get a fucking contact tracing app up and running in this country. We really uh, have just hollowed out our capacity to do stuff. Public money has gone into these you know, completely useless corporations like G4S and like Serco, which have become adept at hoovering up government contracts, not necessarily delivering the services. Um, And so public money just goes into these, you know, really inefficient 
bits of the private sector. Um, so we've hollowed out that state capacity, which is going to be, you know, a problem in coming decades. Already is when you think about the rise of China. Um, so I think understanding China as a communist country uh, still has elements of communism, elements of public ownership, elements of authoritarian authoritarianism and central planning. Um, but it would think it'd be more honest to call it state capitalism. And are there parts? So there are parts of that which would, if you had to create your your ideal model, would it be like neat communism, or would you have threads and strands of anything from capitalism intertwined in there? Well, in terms of my ideal society, I've always been drawn to uh, the sort of libertarian humanist communism of you know Franco Berardi and Bifo, um, the kind of idealism of the Italian, uh, you know, operaismo movement, because I think that there was an emphasis there on play and experimentation and fun, forms of collective joy, which for me are just right at the heart of what I would see as a communist society. Mm. Um, Another thing that I would see, and this would be very different from the kind of industrialization of the Soviet Union and of Mao's China as well, is that the development of green energy, solar, wind, hydro, changes things entirely. Um, You know, very famously, socialism was defined uh, by Fred Hampton, I think it was, he just keeps coming up for me today, uh, as power anywhere where there's people. That literally becomes true when you think about solar power. It's literally where you are. And so then what that means in terms of not necessarily having to have huge amounts of central planning and a consolidation of state power, you have a distribution of power, but literally and metaphorically, is something that I'm really interested in. Do, do you think that like with the technological advancements going on, like say robots did take over all manual labor I think I've seen you talk about this before but like in some senses whilst that could be catastrophic and kind of like I guess a rehashing in a weird way of Thatcher kind of stripping away those jobs could it also mean that we would or could have more freedom to lean into those creative things and actually enjoy the fruits of life rather than spending all day working nine till five or do you think that that there would have to be such a big shift away from capitalism in order for that to be like facilitated could could technology in a funny way help get to that utopian ideal Uh, 10 points for you you just invented marx's fragment on the machine oh sorry i've never read it (laughs) you got there there. (gasps) rolling in his grave like i spent years on this theory and she got there <laughs> but no, i probably have heard you talking about it that's probably why i feel you, so bad that's so embarrassing no no no, 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 no it's so embarrassing at all it's so embarrassing at all it's actually a really lovely <laughs> thing when that happens and i think that kind of shows I, I don't know i think maybe that indicates that that there's something intuitive about some of these really counterintuitive theories. So um, in, in, in the Grundrisse, which is just kind of the collection of like bits and pieces of, of Marx's work, which doesn't quite make it into capital, you've got the very famous fragment on the machine. And Marx spells out just this, is that here is the contradiction, which is the automation of labour makes the worker more precarious because you're having to mm. fight a machine for your job. And the machine's not going to go on strike. The machine doesn't need eight hours of sleep. The machine doesn't need to be fed. Uh, the machine is probably more, more efficient. So it weakens the collective bargaining power of the worker in relation to capital. However, 
it also opens up the potential of something different, which is a world without work. And that's the, that's, that's the instability there. And so then in my colleague Aaron Bastani's book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, he takes as a starting point the fragment on the machine and he looks at areas of innovation. Um, so uh, data, food production, gene editing, energy, uh, and says, well, look, the, the marginal cost of all these forms of technology is rapidly approaching zero. You know, we've got the ingredients of this utopia. So then what you then need to do is develop a political vehicle which can bring it into being. Now, that's the bit where all of us get stuck. What is this political vehicle? And Aaron, bless mm. him in the final chapter of his book, is kind of like, okay, so how do we get to the asteroid mining? Step one, the Preston model. Step two, uh, question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, step three, asteroid mining. Um, you know, it kind of stalls there. But I'm excited to see how he pushes that idea further. But it's precisely that thing that you're talking about. I guess so. I'm just thinking as we were talking that in a funny way, though, this is already happening and that we have like washing machines and dishwashers and cars. And so like there have been lots of things that technically could have relieved us of I guess those things relieved us of, of like manual and physical labor well, women, especially like in the home. Mm-hmm. But then that's just been replaced with work. And this is also <laughs> so like the, it, the feminist critique of of Aaron's book which is right. we actually have had waves of automation of domestic labor and you haven't had gender emancipation. Um, mm. so, and that, that then goes back to the political, the political question, I think he would say, um, which is that, you know, we're not technological determinists. Um, you know, you need so to build movements which can change our thinking. It's not just about waiting for the robots and then things will be fine. Yeah. And I guess also just like ideologically and as a culture, we are obsessed with productivity and work. And um, I really align with this idea. And actually, sometimes people find that awful that like I'm in a creative industry and I love working, but I fucking love resting. And I think everyone should not have to work like however many hours a week. And actually, that's there's a real pushback that on that on that because like culturally, we are obsessed with proving that we're productive and I think this gets like even more exacerbated especially on social media just like on a cultural level it's such a weird phenomenon when it's like that would be such a big mindset shift as well you know we also have a very low productivity economy we've got you know some of the lowest lowest productivity of the g7 nations um so Britain's already fucking up there um and so I think I think we also have like fetishized we don't live in the ideal model of capitalism yeah you know, like some some of the some of the inbuilt assumptions of capitalism are falling apart around our very eyes, and we're just unable to see it. You know, it's the problems of demographic aging, low growth, low productivity. What, what, what's going on? Um, and I, so I think that uh, you know, also emphasizing the importance of leisure, play, rest. Um, you know, I think these things are hugely, hugely important. Um, you know, thinking about what family life could be like. Um, without the economic pressures of uh, working under capitalism, I can't even picture it. Um, I know. Can't even. It's weird, it. isn't it? But is that mm-hmm. why you find it so useful to use communism as a vehicle to like show? Because I used to think that I was like, but what happens? Like, take away the capitalism, I can't see anything. I don't understand what would it be like. So, is that kind of why it's such a useful tool to have your communist utopia as a means of like kind of showing 
the differences? I think so. I think so. Um, you know, uh, Frederick Jameson very famously wrote, it's become easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. You know, this is, that's capitalist realism. It dictates the boundaries of our imagined reality. And what communism, I think, can do, I think as well as actually being a very sensible way of organising resources uh, on mm. a finite planet, um, is to create room for that imaginative other. Um, I think we need, we have utopian instincts and we need political models that can speak to them. Mm. Oh, I love, I've absolutely loved speaking to you. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. No, this um, has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. And thanks for letting me ramble that, about communism. Uh, oh, I love that. I find it so fascinating. Is there anything else you wish I'd asked you or something we've missed? Not really. I just want you to tell your boyfriend that he should be a communist. Oh, I know. We're getting there. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so the last question, which is a new question because it's a new series that I want to ask everyone because I love reading. Sorry, I should have told you I was going to ask this before, but do you have a favourite book or you can say three favourite books if you want to say more? Oh, three favourite books. Okay. I think when it comes to politics, one, I would recommend that people read Franz Fanon, Wretched of the Earth. Because what Fanon does is that he takes Marxism and he stretches it to encompass uh, decolonization, right, and colonialism. So he sees the process of decolonization as a fundamentally uh, anti-capitalist uh, initiative when it's done right. So I think it's a beautiful work, beautiful text. Uh, definitely read it. Um, Amazing. Second book, uh, if you want to read some fiction and some fiction that I found very, very formative, uh, Sam Selvin's The Lonely Londoners, which is kind of about the Windrush generation coming to this country, experiences of alienation, uh, the creation of community in a very cold and unwelcoming country, beautifully written as well, just, just stunning. And the third book... Um, ah, so this is a book that, that, that radicalized my mum recently. Um, okay. a friend of mine's <laughs> book, uh, called Riding for Deliveroo by Callum Kant. It's an exploration of, uh, work and trade union organizing in the gig economy. And my mum, I'd left it, uh, at her house and she rang me up and she was like, do you know what bastards Deliveroo are? So, uh, yeah, that's really, I really got her go. Um, and it's a really, really good book. Oh, well, that was so good. Quick off the mark. I think I would have actually quite struggled. I'm going to put those all in the show notes so people can find them as well. Um, if people want to find you, uh, if they're not already following you, you are, what are all your handles? Uh, my handles on Instagram and Twitter are AOCaesar. <laughs> which oh, was yeah, a dumb nickname from uni and so those are my handles and then I'm stuck with it um so it's a-y-o-c-a-e-s-a-r perfect thank you so much for joining me and everyone do go check out you've got loads of amazing videos on um Navara Media which are great um and I would recommend checking out if you want to hear more from Ash but yeah thank you so I'm much for joining me if I spelt my own handles right sorry give me one second I suddenly oh, don't got worry. paranoid yeah I just spell it right back yeah. <laughs> um you know you get this intrusive thought of like you just spelt it wrong and it's your own oh handle. yeah completely um yeah <laughs>
Um, oh, what amazing. Thank you so much. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.